I am speaking to you at a moment of grave crisis. I'm Jeff Turner, and this is Recall. It's a series about history. Not the ancient past, but history that's still hot to the touch. In this first season, I explore a revolutionary political movement that brought a modern democracy to the brink. You can find Recall, How to Start a Revolution, on the CBC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. Hello, I'm Neil Kirksall. Good evening, I'm Chris Howden. This is As It Happens. Tonight. No one left behind. An Ottawa man has helped bring more than 100 families fleeing the Taliban to Canada. But there's one family still left in danger, his own. Fighting words. Ahmad Hello was just a teenager when he joined Hamas, vowing revenge on Israel. Now he's a peace activist, and he warns that the only way out of this conflict is words, not war. Escape clause. A Canadian-Palestinian woman says she is cautiously optimistic today after hearing Ottawa announce it will try to help extended families like hers get out of Gaza. Reeling in and then just reeling, a four-year-old Wisconsin girl and her dad had planned to catch a fish, but instead they caught a shipwreck from 1871. The co-host of Christmas Present, we will bring you Chris's holiday reading of To Everything There Is a Season, a story that looks back at a Cape Breton homecoming. And foul play is suspected. Normally, those who protect a giant straw goat in Sweden at this time of year are on the lookout for arsonists. But this year, it is facing a Hitchcockian new enemy, hungry birds. As it happens, the Thursday edition, radio that's concerned about crow-lateral damage. Farouk Samim has helped more than 100 Afghans fleeing the Taliban to come to Canada. But there's one family he hasn't been able to rescue yet, his own nephews. Mr. Samim is the co-founder of a group of volunteers called Operation Abraham. Since the Taliban took over Afghanistan more than two years ago, they have worked to get a long list of people to safety. The very last people on that list are his nephew, his nephew's wife, and their three daughters, who are two, four, and five. The family has been waiting in Pakistan, where they barely go outdoors, out of fear they'll be deported back to Afghanistan. We reached Farooq Samim in Ottawa. Farooq, I know you speak with your nephew and his family several times a week. What do they say when you call? Yeah, they live in the capital region of Pakistan. They live in a tiny shelter in cold for the past 18 months since we have evacuated them from Afghanistan. And the three little girls and the parents are surrounded by the walls of their shelter, uh, hoping to come to Canada, but very helpless, worried about their fate, what is waiting for them. And uh, this is what our communication is all about, giving them the courage to sustain for a little bit longer. How do you do that? And what kind of toll does it take on you? Because that is a lot of conversations, a lot of times where you have to say, I don't know when they ask, when will we get to leave? Well, the difficult part is to talk with the kids, with the adults. I tell them the bureaucracy takes its time. 
and uh, God willing, they will come to Canada one day. But for the children, I'm the father figure for their father, and they're like my uh, grandchildren, and they actually call me grandpa, uh, <laughs> young grandpa. And uh, I tell them, my children, do not worry. We'll bring you to Canada. We'll bring you to uh, the safety of Canada, where you could go to school, or you could go to park and play and just uh, a little bit more. It's emotional. Yes, it is. This is family, of course, we've said. Uh, Muhabbatullah is your nephew. But beyond that, is there a reason you feel a special responsibility to him? Yes, yes. Muhabbatullah is like my child. I raised him from the age of five. And uh, I have witnessed every step that he has taken to become a successful and brave officer of the previous National Army of Afghanistan, which was supported by our Canadian efforts and by the NATO forces. And it's important for me because his life is partly endangered because of uh, his affiliation with me. We lived in the same house, that house which has been raided by the Taliban five times to find Muhabbatullah and the two brothers, that they were all in the army at the time. And uh, it has been very, very dangerous for this family since the collapse of the Afghan government in the hand of Taliban. Even after we evacuated them to Islamabad, it is more uh, dangerous for Afghan refugees now every day. And every day it puts them in danger because Afghans are being deported. And if this happens to this family, that means sending them to the certain death, detention, or whatever kind of retaliation that will come from the Taliban. And that's important for me to bring them to the safety of my beautiful country, Canada. We know Muhabbatullah's two brothers have already made it to Canada. I'm wondering what the federal government has said to you about why his own family hasn't been approved to come to Canada. The two brothers also came, but it wasn't without challenges. Those are members of the former National Security Forces of Afghanistan. The security clearance takes longer for them. It took longer than other civilian evacuees for the two brothers. But thank God they're here in the safety of Canada. And that's what we hear from the uh, Immigration Refugee Citizenship Canada, that it's in the hands of the Public Safety Department of Canada. But it takes 18 months, 18 long months. And they are the, the members of the forces that they fought the Taliban. And they are endangered. This shouldn't have taken that long. It's the matter of life and death. A spokesperson for the Immigration Department told the Globe and Mail, and, and we should say the Globe and Mail first reported these latest developments, that spokesperson said they could not provide information about his case, but that they're processing applications as quickly as possible. How much faith do you have at this point, Farouk, that, that everything that is possible is being done right now to help your nephew? Neil, uh it didn't take even six months longer for other evacuees. And how long more does it take for this family? They are in grave, grave danger. They have submitted their biometrics, the adults, and the medical checkup has been submitted by the children and the whole family. And nothing has happened. So I do not know how long more it takes. The Department of Public Safety, whoever leads our public safety department, 
if it was their child, if it was their nephew, what would they do? Would they be able to go to sleep? This is the relative of someone who put his life in line for Canada. I have trained our troops, have spent time in the front line when I was in Afghanistan as a journalist, have provided written guidance to our NATO forces to keep them away from harm ways. This is like my child. This is like my nephew. How long more shall I wait? You have others trying to help you in this effort as well, including your co-founder, Jacques Shore. And Jacques told The Globe, quote, I'm afraid we could lose this last family, and that's what's keeping me up at night. Operation Abraham's success or failure depends on this last family, regardless of everything we've done to date, end quote. What does that support mean to you? That means a world of support. I am so grateful to amazing Canadians like Rock Shore and our other co-founders of Operation Abraham from Gowling, GWL in Ottawa, who went above and beyond. They came to help and save lives. And Operation Abraham is an interfaith group consisted of Christians, Jews, Muslims, in the unfair world that we live today. These angels of God have come together and they have put their religious background aside and they have focused on humanity, saving lives and bringing people to safety. Jacques Shore, Louis Rettig and other colleagues of mine, they are the ones that sustain me emotionally. Without them, it wouldn't have been possible. And people in Canada should look up to Operation Abraham and its members, not just me because I'm an Afghan Canadian, but those that they did not have a connection to Afghanistan, but they came and tried to rescue the precious life that we have saved so far. Farouk, I can hear in your voice that it's not easy to talk about, but you feel it is necessary to talk about it so you can bring them here. Thank you. Thank you, Neil. Thanks for the opportunity and thanks for becoming the voice for these voiceless that they need our help. Thanks a lot. Thank you. Bye-bye. Farouk Samim is the co-founder of Operation Abraham, an NGO that helps resettle Afghans fleeing Taliban persecution. He's in Ottawa. This is a time of year that lends itself to pondering the past, present, and future, nostalgia too, and for many people, memories of childhood Christmases are the most meaningful. In Alistair MacLeod's 1977 short story, To Everything There Is a Season, the narrator isn't even a teenager yet, but he is already wistful for the more innocent Christmases of his younger years. He does look ahead as well, anticipating his older brother's return home to Cape Breton and his own adulthood. Tonight, we bring you Chris's reading of that story. Here is To Everything There Is a Season. I am speaking here of a time when I was 11 and lived with my family on our small farm on the west coast of Cape Breton. My family had been there for a long, long time, and so it seemed had I. And much of that time seems like the proverbial yesterday— Yet, when I speak on this Christmas, 1977, I am not sure how much I speak with the voice of that time, 
or how much in the voice of what I have since become. And I'm not sure how many liberties I may be taking with the boy I think I was. For Christmas is a time of both past and present, and often the two are imperfectly blended. As we step into its nowness, we often look behind. We have been waiting now, it seems, forever. Actually, it has been most intense since Halloween, when the first snow fell upon us as we moved like muffled mummers upon darkened country roads. The large flakes were soft and new then, and almost generous, and the earth to which they fell was still warm and as yet unfrozen. They fell in silence into the puddles and into the sea where they disappeared at the moment of contact. They disappeared too upon touching the heated redness of our necks and hands or the faces of those who did not wear masks. We carried our pillowcases from house to house, knocking on doors to become silhouettes in the light thrown out from kitchens, white pillowcases held out by whitened forms. The snow fell between us and the doors and was transformed in shimmering golden beams. When we turned to leave, it fell upon our footprints and as the night wore on, obliterated them and all the records of our movements. In the morning, everything was soft and still, and November had come upon us. My brother Kenneth, who is two and a half, is unsure of his last Christmas. It is Halloween that looms largest in his memory, as an exceptional time of being up late in magic darkness and falling snow. Who are you going to dress up as at Christmas, he asks. I think I'll be a snowman. All of us laugh at that and tell him Santa Claus will find him if he is good and that he need not dress up at all. We go about our appointed tasks, waiting for it to happen. I am troubled myself about the nature of Santa Claus, and I am trying to hang on to him any way that I can. It is true that at my age I no longer really believe in him, yet I have hoped in all his possibilities as fiercely as I can. Much in the same way, I think, that the drowning man waves desperately to the lights of the passing ship on the high sea's darkness. For without him, as without the man's ship, it seems our fragile lives would be so much more desperate. My mother has been fairly tolerant of my attempted perpetuation, perhaps because she has encountered it before. Once, I overheard her speaking about my sister Anne to one of her neighbors— I thought Anne would believe forever, she said. I practically had to tell her. I have somehow always wished I had not heard her say that, as I seek sanctuary and reinforcement, even in an ignorance I know I dare not trust. Kenneth, however, believes with an unadulterated fervor, and so do Bruce and Barry, who are six-year-old twins. Beyond me there is Anne, who is thirteen, and Mary, who is fifteen, both of whom seem to be leaving childhood at an alarming rate. My mother has told us that she was already married when she was 17, which is only two years older than Mary is now. That too seems strange to contemplate, and perhaps childhood is shorter for some than it is for others. I think of this sometimes in the evenings when we have finished our chores and the supper dishes have been cleared away and we are supposed to be doing our homework. I glance sideways at my mother, who is always knitting or mending, and at my father, who mostly sits by the stove coughing quietly with his handkerchief at his mouth. He has not been well for over two years and has difficulty breathing whenever he moves at more than the slowest pace. He is most sympathetic of all concerning my extended hopes and says we should hang on to the good things in our lives as long as we are able. As I look at him out of the corner of my eye, it does not seem that he has many of them left. 
He is old, we think, at 42. Yet Christmas, in spite of all the doubts of our different ages, is a fine and splendid time. And now, as we pass the midpoint of December, our expectations are heightened by the increasing coldness that has settled down upon us. The ocean is flat and calm, and along the coast, in the scooped-out coves, has turned to an icy slush. The brook that flows past our house is almost totally frozen, and there is only a small channel of rushing water that flows openly at its very center. When we let the cattle out to drink, we chop holes with the axe at the brook's edge so that they can drink without venturing onto the ice. The sheep move in and out of their lean-to shelter, restlessly stamping their feet or huddling together in tightly packed groups, a conspiracy of wool against the cold. The hens perch high on their roosts with their feathers fluffed out about them, hardly feeling it worthwhile to descend to the floor for their few scant kernels of grain. The pig, who has little time before his butchering, squeals his displeasure to the cold, and with his snout tosses his wooden trough high in the icy air. The splendid young horse paws the planking of his stall and gnaws the wooden crib work of his manger. We have put a protective barricade of spruce boughs about our kitchen door and banked our house with additional boughs and billows of eelgrass. Still, the pail of water we leave standing in the porch is solid in the morning and has to be broken with the hammer. The clothes my mother hangs on the line are frozen almost instantly and sway and creak from their suspending clothespins like sections of dismantled robots. The stiff-legged, rasping trousers and the shirts and sweaters with unyielding arms outstretched. In the morning, we race from our frigid upstairs bedrooms to finish dressing around the kitchen stove. We would extend our coldness half a continent away to the Great Lakes of Ontario so that it might hasten the Christmas coming of my oldest brother, Neil. He is 19 and employed on the lake boats, the long, flat carriers of grain and iron ore, whose season ends any day after December 10th, depending on the ice conditions. We wish it to be cold, cold on the Great Lakes of Ontario, so that he may come home to us as soon as possible. Already his cartons have arrived. They come from different places, Coburg, Toronto, St. Catharines, Welland, Windsor, Sarnia, Sault Ste. Marie, places that we, with the exception of my father, have never been. We locate them excitedly on the map, tracing their outlines with eager fingers. The cartons bear the lettering of Canada steamship lines and are bound with rope knotted intricately in the fashion of sailors. My mother says they contain his clothes and we are not allowed to open them. For us, it is impossible to know the time or manner of his coming. If the lakes freeze early, he may come by train, because it is cheaper. If the lakes stay open until December 20th, he will have to fly, because his time will be more precious than his money. He will hitchhike the last 60 or 100 miles from either station or airport. On our part, we can do nothing but listen with straining ears to radio reports of distant ice formations, his coming seems to depend on so many factors which are out there far beyond us and over which we lack control. The days go by in fevered slowness until finally, on the morning of December 23rd, the strange car rolls into the yard. My mother touches her hand to her lips and whispers, Thank God. 
My father gets up unsteadily from his chair to look through the window. Their longed-for son and our golden older brother is here at last. He is here with his reddish hair and beard, and we can hear his hearty laugh. He will be happy and strong and confident for us all. There are three other young men with him who look much the same as he. They too are from the boats and are trying to get home to Newfoundland. They must still drive a hundred miles to reach the ferry at North Sydney. The car seems very old. They purchased it in Thorold for $200 because they were too late to make any reservations, and they have driven steadily since they began. In northern New Brunswick, their windshield wipers failed, but instead of stopping, they tied lengths of cord to the wipers' arms and passed them through the front window vents. Since that time, in whatever precipitation, one of them has pulled the cords back and forth to make the wipers function. This information falls tiredly but excitedly from their lips, and we greedily gather it in. My father pours them drinks of rum, and my mother takes out her mincemeat and the fruitcakes she has been carefully hoarding. We lean on the furniture, or look from the safety of sheltered doorways. We would like to hug our brother, but are too shy with strangers present. In the kitchen's warmth, the young men begin to nod and doze, their heads dropping suddenly to their chests. They nudge each other with their feet in an attempt to keep awake. They will not stay and rest because they have come so far, and tomorrow is Christmas Eve, and stretches of mountains and water still lie between them and those they love. After they leave, we pounce upon our brother, physically and verbally, he laughs and shouts and lifts us over his head and swings us in his muscular arms. Yet, in spite of his happiness, he seems surprised at the appearance of his father, whom he has not seen since March. My father merely smiles at him, while my mother bites her lip. Now that he is here, there is a great flurry of activity. We have left everything we could until the time he might be with us. Eagerly, I show him the fir tree on the hill, which I have been watching for months and marvel at how easily he fells it and carries it down the hill. We fall over one another in the excitement of decoration. He promises that on Christmas Eve he will take us to church in the sleigh behind the splendid horse that, until his coming, we are all afraid to handle. And on the afternoon of Christmas Eve he shoes the horse, lifting each hoof and rasping it fine and hammering the cherry-red horseshoes into shape upon the anvil, Later, he drops them hissingly into the steaming tub of water. My father sits beside him on an overturned pail and tells him what to do. Sometimes we argue with our father, but our brother does everything he says. That night, bundled in hay and voluminous coats and with heated stones at our feet, we start upon our journey. Our parents and Kenneth remain at home, but all the rest of us go. Before we leave, we feed the cattle and sheep and even the pig, all that they can possibly eat so that they will be contented on Christmas Eve. Our parents wave to us from the doorway. We go four miles across the mountain road. It is a primitive logging trail, and there will be no cars or other vehicles upon it. At first, the horse is wild with excitement and lack of exercise, and my brother has to stand at the front of the sleigh and lean backwards on the reins. Later, he settles down to a trot, and still later to a walk, as the mountain rises before him. We sing all the Christmas songs we know and watch for the rabbits and foxes scudding across the open patches of snow and listen to the drumming of partridge wings. We are never cold. 
When we descend to the country church, we tie the horse in a grove of trees where he will be sheltered and not frightened by the many cars. We put a blanket over him and give him oats. At the church door, the neighbors shake hands with my brother. Hello, Neil, they say. How is your father? Oh, he says, just, oh. The church is very beautiful at night, with its festooned branches and glowing candles, and the booming joyous sounds that come from the choir loft. We go through the service as if we are mesmerized. On the way home, although the stones have cooled, we remain happy and warm. We listen to the creak of the leather harness and the hiss of runners on the snow, and begin to think of the potentiality of presence. When we are about a mile from home, the horse senses his destination and breaks into a trot, and then into a confident lope. My brother lets him go, and we move across the winter landscape like figures freed from a Christmas card. The snow from the horse's hooves falls about our heads, like the whiteness of the stars. After we have stabled the horse, we talk with our parents and eat the meal our mother has prepared. And then I am sleepy, and it is time for the younger children to be in bed. But tonight, my father says to me, we would like you to stay up with us a while. And so I stay quietly with the older members of my family. When all is silent upstairs, Neil brings in the cartons that contain his clothes and begins to open them. He unties the intricate knots quickly, their whorls falling away before his agile fingers. The boxes are filled with gifts, neatly wrapped and bearing tags. The ones from my younger brothers say, from Santa Claus. But mine are not among them anymore. As I know with certainty, they will never be again. Yet I am not so much surprised as touched by a pang of loss at being here on the adult side of the world. It is as if I have suddenly moved into another room and heard a door click lastingly behind me. I am jabbed by my own small wound. But then I look at those before me. I look at my parents, drawn together before the Christmas tree. My mother has her hand upon my father's shoulder, and he is holding his ever-present handkerchief. I look at my sisters, who have crossed this threshold ahead of me, and now, each day, journey farther from the lives they knew as girls. I look at my magic older brother, who has come to us this Christmas from half a continent away, bringing everything he has and is. All of them are captured in the tableau of their care. Every man moves on, says my father quietly, and I think he speaks of Santa Claus. But there is no need to grieve. He leaves good things behind. Chris's reading of To Everything There Is a Season by Nova Scotia author Alistair MacLeod.
Things are not looking promising for peace talks in Cairo. Hamas political leader Ismail Haniyeh traveled there from Qatar this week to discuss a possible truce with Israel and a further exchange of hostages and prisoners. But today he rejected the prospect of any further releases until, quote, a full cessation of aggression, unquote. In a separate statement, Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu said, quote, whoever thinks that we will stop is detached from reality, unquote. It's a crushing development for the families of Israeli hostages and for civilians in Gaza who've endured more than two months of bombardment and deprivation. According to the Hamas-run health ministry there, 20,000 Palestinians have now been killed. And a new UN-backed report says the territory's entire population is facing the risk of famine. Ahmad Hello is a former member of Hamas and a current member of the organization Combatants for Peace, which also includes ex-IDF fighters who are now committed to nonviolence. We reached him in Jericho. Ahmad, were you surprised that negotiations in Cairo broke down? Uh, no. To be honest, I'm sad because uh, I have a big family in Gaza and I lost uh, many uh, relatives, many cousins, and I don't want to stop the war just uh, one w- one week or two weeks and uh, turn back. I need to stop the war uh, for uh, ever. I need to see uh, really, really ceasefire, really stopping war. Are you optimistic stop. that the war will stop? Yes. I'm so optimist because I saw a lot of demonstration against the war in the world, like uh, USA, like uh, UK, like uh, Germany, to stop this uh, war or to tell to Netanyahu it's enough. You mentioned the family that you have in Gaza, the family members, extended family members you've lost already who have died. Yeah. Your surviving yeah. relatives there, what are they telling you about what it is like in Gaza right now? They tell me two things. The first thing, they hope to die. They wish to die today because they have enough from uh, from everything. They have enough to see uh, kill, the killings in uh, front of them. They have enough to hear a bombing. So the first thing they wish if they died now, not after one minute or two minutes. The second thing they said, if we survive from uh, this war, we will not stay in Gaza. They will leave. What do you say to them when they say they want to die. That's a horrible thing to hear. I know that. Mm. I know that, but I'm I'm not between them mm. to to feel how much pain they feel. When was the last time you spoke to your family members? around uh, nine days ago. Mm. Nine days ago. I don't know Mm -hmm. how are they, if they are alive or uh, not alive. I hope you get 
answers, uh, and I hope you get to speak with them very soon, Ahmad. I I also wanted yeah. to ask you about your own personal yeah. story, your history, because it's quite remarkable yeah. how you're able to, to work towards peace and have optimism now when many others do not. But in when you were a teenager, you didn't feel yeah. the same way. And you joined the local mm-hmm. wing of Hamas in Jericho. Why did you mm-hmm. do that then? Because I grew up with my grandparents and my parents' story about the catastrophe in Nakba in 48 and in Naksa in 67. And all these stories, how many Israeli killed people in front of them. So I decided to revenge. And when uh, the first Intifada started, I was 15 years old. And uh, I said, it is my time to revenge. This is my time to get all my angry against the Judaism, against the Jewish people. Throw stones, make Palestinian flags. I spent uh, seven months in the Israeli jail because uh, of uh, that. Yeah. When you think back to that time, what, you know, what do you remember about what made you change course and choose nonviolence? Oslo Agreement. The Oslo Agreement. Yeah, the Oslo Agreement. I start to believe in the negotiation and the peace uh, process, and uh, I decide to leave Hamas and start working and helping uh, my uh, society to convince uh, them about uh, that, about the negotiation and to talk with mm. with the enemy. So the organization you work with now consists of former combatants, former IDF soldiers. There's a story you told our producer about an IDF, a former soldier who you ended up speaking with. Can mm. you tell us that story? Mm. So uh, during my... Um, uh, work in uh, combatants I met uh, Israeli uh, we became a friends uh, and uh, I invite I invite him uh, to Jericho so we spent uh, overnight in my uh, home and in the morning uh, we went to uh, run because I'm a sport guy and he's uh, also a sport guy mm-hmm. During our uh, running, uh, he started talking that uh, he he was serving in uh, Jericho in the first Intifada. And uh, he remembered some uh, place where I was throw stones against uh, the uh, Israeli military jeeps. So uh, both of us uh, were using the violence against each mm-hmm. other. But we stopped the violence. We became friends. Because of that, uh, we believe uh, we can. We can uh, work all together. We can live all together in this uh, place. If we have a trust uh, with uh, each other, we we can. We can do it, really. Given your experience, Ahmad, what would you say to young Palestinians who are feeling without hope and maybe are feeling like you did when you were 15? What do you say to them about your optimism for peace in the future? To be honest, I uh, I try to uh, be strong uh, in front of uh, them to don't lose uh, them uh, hope. Yeah. Because if they lose uh, them hope, that means they lose uh, them life. 
I tell them uh, the situation will uh, will over and we have uh, a new uh, future inshallah and the best uh, future is coming uh, for us but till when and uh, I'm, I'm a guy okay maybe I, I am optimist guy but I cannot prove that uh, why I'm uh, optimist Uh, the people they need to see something on the ground, not just the dreams. Just build the trust. Just give them uh, the rights. That will uh, finish everything. Everything. Ahmed, thank you for your time. Yes. I hope you hear from your family soon. Inshallah. Inshallah. Take care, Ahmed. Thank you. Thank you for you too. Ahmad Hello is a former Hamas fighter who now works with the peace organization Combatants for Peace. We reached him in Jericho in the West Bank. And now an update on a story we brought you a few weeks ago. On December 5th, Isra al-Safin told us that her mother, father, sisters, in-laws, and 10-month-old nephew were stuck in Rafah in southern Gaza. They were sheltering in a factory basement with little food or water. Her brother was killed in an Israeli airstrike, and Ms. Al-Safin's sister was sending her desperate voice notes with bombs dropping in the background, begging her to get them to Canada. But at that time, Canada was only accepting immediate family. Today, Immigration Minister Mark Miller announced that the government will now help people in Gaza who are related to Canadians through new temporary immigration measures, such as parents and siblings. But he admitted it is still extremely difficult to get through the Rafah crossing. After the press conference, Isra Al-Safin talked about what she hopes this means for her family. The priority of me and my family here is to bring everybody into safety. Um, my nephew is my responsibility. My dad has only three grandchildren. Two of them are my kids here and the only kid for my brother, which is in Gaza. I wish and I hope that I will be soon having them joining me here in Canada into safety. Um, I'm not the only person with this um, issue. A lot of Canadians here in Canada living every day with the pain and the worrying about their families. And nobody deserves to live this um, emotions and feelings, and nobody wants to worry every day to death about their family being fed. Are they safe? Is the bombing happening right now close to them or not? Um, my request is that I'm not going to accept uh, less than my family come here and everybody um, of the Palestinian Canadians here are having the same request. We want our family to join us <clears throat> into safety and as soon as possible. Um, so you obviously, obviously welcome this announcement, but there's still a question of the Rafa crossing and on getting these people across. Can you just provide us uh, some details of, of what the situation is like for your family on the ground right now? What are the conditions and, and how do you suppose they can, they'll eventually be able to cross that border? Well, <clears throat> I have no clue because currently the borders are closed only for uh, people with foreign passports. For example, a Canadian citizen that's stuck there can cross the borders. Um, the big issue for me is to get them crossing that borders because I don't know um, if that's going to be a step that the Canadian will help 
um, uh, the government will help um, them crossing uh, by putting their e um, sorry their names on the borders list for the people that are eligible to cross into Egypt to continue their paperwork. Um, that's what I hope for. Uh, my family now is in Rafah in a storage room. Um, I got a message from my sister indicating that they looked for hours to find a food for my nephew. And as she indicated that we are all adults, we can suck it up and uh, stay without food for a day or two, but this is a baby and I can't wait for more news like that. That was Isra Al-Safin talking about her family in Gaza this afternoon, just after Immigration Minister Mark Miller announced that the Canadian government is expanding eligibility of who it will help get out of Gaza. Hello, I'm Jess Milton. For 15 years, I produced The Vinyl Cafe with the late, great Stuart McLean. Every week, more than 2 million people tuned in to hear funny, fictional, feel-good stories about Dave and his family. We're excited to welcome you back to the warm and welcoming world of The Vinyl Cafe with our new podcast, Backstage at The Vinyl Cafe. Each week, we'll share two hilarious stories by Stuart, and for the first time ever, I'll tell you what it was like behind the scenes. Subscribe for free wherever you get your podcasts. As it happens, listeners are the GOAT, as in the greatest of all time. And as the GOAT, many among you will know of one story that comes up on this program around the holidays year after year. We even touched on it just a few weeks ago. In fact, a lot of you will be able to guess which story I mean with just a few clues. First, listen to this clip from 2011 in the words of host Jeff Douglas. Our apologies if that clip contained Swedish cursing. Flames and fiery words in Swedish. Now, for some of you, more than enough information to guess the story already. For the rest of you, here's another clue. This is from As It Happens a decade ago. This is a classic drama between the good people and the good citizens trying to celebrate Christmas in a peaceful way. They are the good guys. And on, uh, on the other side, the bad guys, the hoodlums. That was a spokesperson for a certain town in Sweden, capturing the mythic themes of this evergreen story in 2013. And if you're still in the dark, listen now to former host Carol Off with a question she posed to yet another beleaguered spokesperson for that same Swedish town in 2021. There has been an attempted kidnapping with a helicopter. It's been rammed by a car. But mostly it's been attacked with, by arson. What, what, why is that? Why is that some kind of a perverse tradition? Thus conclude the clues, and as the goat you have undoubtedly deduced by now that I am speaking of a goat, the Yavla goat. A giant goat made of straw that has been erected in the Swedish town of Yavla every holiday season since 1966, and which has been burned down or otherwise attacked most holiday seasons since 1966. The goat has gone up in smoke 38 times in the last 57 years, 
and it has been covered on As It Happens one way or another at least 10 times. Now, for the past five years, the goat has survived human attacks, but now it faces an entirely new threat, one straight out of a Hitchcock movie. Anna Karen Neiman is a spokesperson for the town of Yavla. We reached her there. Anna, we just need to be sure, as we do this interview, is the goat still standing? <laughs> yes, he's still standing. Okay, phew. But <laughs> you have a new challenge, not the threat of a fire as usual. What's happening now? Well, uh, to paint the picture for you, we have a 13 meters high. I think that's about 42 feet. Mm-hmm. It's a Christmas goat uh, and it's made of straw. And uh, right now uh, there are birds eating the grain that is left in the straw. And uh, this has never happened before. And it's uh, due to the weather this summer mm-hmm. in Sweden. It rained a lot before the farmers were going to harvest. So the harvest was really wet and made it difficult to do, get the grain the grains out mm. and uh, the birds seems to really like the grain. An effect of climate change perhaps we hadn't considered? Yes, people are talking about it because it didn't just affect the, the Christmas goat, it affected the whole country. I mean, we had we didn't have enough food for the animal, farm animals and so on. And, and this has been go- going on since 1966, I believe, the town started this tradition. You've never seen the birds attack. You have, just give our listeners a sense of the security you have in place to fight off the other problem, which is fire, which has <laughs> happened many more times than than the goat has actually stayed intact, right? Yes. Uh, he's been kidnapped. He's been uh, hit oh, no. by cars and uh, he's had a, a few rough years. Um, but he's uh, guarded around the clock. Uh, I can't tell you exactly how, but we have guards and we have uh, security cameras and also other security measures. But uh, we don't want people with bad intentions knowing exactly what we do. So okay. I'm sorry, I can't be more specific. No, it's it's top secret. <laughs> I'm, I'm glad you were able to yes. even say as much as you have. We appreciate, <laughs> we appreciate that. Yes. What is the goat looking like right now, given uh, that the birds have been feasting? He looks a bit like a punk rocker, maybe. <laughs> uh, <laughs> he looks a little bit uncombed or unkempt mm-hmm. uh, right now. Uh, but to me, of course, he's still very handsome. And, and sure. uh, the body the body is, is pretty intact. But in the horns, uh, you can see a bit of the steel frame. And under his nose, you can see a bit of the tree frame. Uh, yes. How are people mm. in Yavlo reacting this time? Well, this is <laughs> this is really new to us. But people in Yavlo, they're so in- engaged in this and they think it's positive that the Christmas goat here gets a new purpose. And they say, let the birds eat. In Christmas, you should be extra kind and so <laughs> on. So we, we got so many mails and phone calls really? and uh, yes it's uh, I mean <laughs> we couldn't expect this it's it's really uh, unusual it sounds it's kind of heartwarming too people so you haven't been trying to to scare the birds off you're letting the birds do what they what they need to do yes and I feel like we really made the right choice in the beginning because on the first day the Christmas goat was up we saw the birds and uh, at that moment, we decided that we wouldn't scare them. Uh, we thought about putting out extra food mm-hmm. beside the Christmas goat to lure them, but 
we talked to a bird expert and he said that that would only get more birds <laughs> so yeah. but uh, to scare them wouldn't feel like the christmas spirit and that's the, the christmas goat's purpose yeah is that why the town started this all of those years ago in 1966 as we as we said like i mean was this a precursor to burning man <laughs> well, uh, the Christmas goat, uh, in the beginning, it was to to uh, make people come in to the south of Gävle. They wanted, the shops there wanted to get more business, so to speak. So the first time in 1966, it it was the reason why he was put up. I see. And, and have there been any regrets since then, given the the upheaval every year? <laughs> no, I don't think so. Well, I, I mean, there are people that are negative, of course, there's always mm -hmm. that. But in general, I'm, I was raised here in Gävle and I know a lot of people and I've seen the Christmas goat since I was a child with my mother and so on. And here in Gävle, we were very proud of the Christmas goat and he, he gets a lot, he gets us a lot of visitors and yeah. uh, a lot of joy. Last year, it was my first time as a spokesperson and the other spokespersons before me said, oh, you're going to love him even more when you're a spokesperson. But I didn't think that. But the more I talk about him and the more I work with this uh, project, you get more and more involved. Involved, So I, I feel I feel love for him. I do. Yeah. I think he's very handsome. <laughs> <laughs> part of the family, part of your family, for sure. Yes. But given, you yes. know arsonists, the birds now, is the ultimate goal for it to stay standing by the end of the holidays? Or do you kind of want it to be attacked in some way? <laughs> I understand the question and we yeah. get it a lot. But I mean, we want him to stand the whole season. We we build him by hand. It takes more than a thousand hours just to knot this uh, straw knots oh. and build him. And uh, he means a lot to people here in Gävle and he's a big part of the Christmas spirit and atmosphere. Is it sort of a generational thing, a skill that people work on for years and years? I'm a bit concerned right now because mm -hmm. uh, the, the two most experienced uh, builders are saying that they might get uh, retired. Oh. <laughs> so we we have to make sure that they, they leave their um uh, the tradition on, so to speak. I feel like that's going to be our conversation next Christmas. So put that on your calendar. <laughs> Anna, I appreciate your time. Merry Christmas. Well, Merry Christmas. Anna Karen Neiman is the spokesperson for the town of Javla, Sweden, where the Javla goat is still standing in a somewhat diminished form, or at least he was the last time we checked. Like all libraries, the library in Hay River Northwest Territories thinks of itself as a welcoming place, a place where anyone can come in, grab a book, grab a seat, and hang out. But as of now, taking a seat requires a special request. That's because the library has removed all of its indoor seating, because it is unable to manage an influx of people who had been sheltering inside. Christine Jappai is the head librarian in Hay River. We reached her there. Christine, what, what was happening at your library? What pushed you to do this? Slowly, progressively over time, um, the library has become more and more of a place 
for people to loiter, hang out all day, use it as a warming shelter, basically. Um, and everything that a group of people who are hanging around the library brings with it, um, arguments, fighting, um, drugs and alcohol, whether they're outside or, you know, if it's in their bloodstream and they're coming into the library and library staff are having to monitor and it's gotten to the point where we just can't cope with it. Like there would be 20 people sitting on our chairs all day, in and out, in and out. How big is your library? How many people could comfortably hang out there? Yeah, they would have pretty much taken up all the seating. Like our library is small. It's, it's just one big open room that sort of we divide in the half. One side we call the adult area where we have all of our chairs. The other half is the children area where we have little chairs for, for yeah. children and family. So it's basically in the adult area. Every chair was taken. So people that want to use the library, they're limited from doing so. And, and it's not a comfortable and pleasant environment either. Anyone who knows and loves libraries knows that they are a gathering place, not just a place to you know take out a book and leave. So I wonder what making that decision was like for you. That was a very difficult decision to come to. And libraries are open and accessible to everybody. And it should be a place where you can sit and read a newspaper. But it's gotten to the point where it's not welcoming. It's unpleasant. It's, um, you know, people are arguing and fighting and swearing and it's beyond library staff to manage, mm-hmm. to yeah. to make it an environment where people want to come in and bring their families. Because I have people stopping me in the grocery store. I'm not coming in the library anymore. I'm not bringing my children. I won't allow my children to come into the library. I understand that. I totally understand where they're coming from. And Libraries, like we were saying, you know, it's a place for people to meet, and uh, but it's gone beyond that. You've lived in Hay River for more than 30 years now. So from where you stand, how do you think it got to this point? Hay River has definitely changed. Hay River has gone through some tough times. In 2019, our high-rise, it's a 17-story high-rise, had a fire, so 150 people lost their homes. Um, Then we had a flood last year in the spring. People lost their homes. Um, We had two fire evacuations this year. There's all these hits Hay River's taking. People can't afford Mm -hmm. housing. They can't afford their food and their basic um, essentials. And then that brings, you know, increase in drug and alcohol use. And serious drugs have moved into Hay River. It's back-to-back-to-back calamities. Back-to-back-to-back. What about social um, supports? What about, uh, you know, warming centers and official help? Where is that? Does it exist or it's not enough? It's not enough. And there is now, today, um, a day shelter that's open and night shelter. They're dependent on funding, so that's, you know, short-term, how long they can run. They're open, they close, um, they're struggling. Um, community counseling are doing the best they can, but there's so much more that's needed, and it's needed on a permanent, consistent basis. Like, I, I keep telling residents of Hay River that this is happening in the library, but it's happening in your town. It's happening in Hay River. To your neighbors. Yes, exactly, exactly. Where have have the folks who were coming to the library, where have they been going? Have they been going to, to those facilities you mentioned? 
Well, I talked to um, the woman that's running the shelter few days ago, and she said she's noticed an increase in people. I haven't fully followed up, but just going downtown, I can see that they're in front of other stores now. And the library committee um, has written a letter that's gone to the mayor and our two MLAs and Katlodeche First Nation because there needs to be permanent solutions. The town of Hay River did introduce fines for loitering and public intoxication recently. Will that approach help, do you think? I haven't seen a difference as far as the library before we started this um, Mm -hmm. chair removal. I think it's one part of the puzzle. Um, It's not going to make a big change um, because people do need the services, the support, the counselling. And we should say your library is offering counselling and outreach programs a couple of days a week. Is that program continuing? That is continuing. I I highly encourage that. So community counsellors come in the afternoons, Wednesday and Friday afternoons, and they have a table and they have information. And I have our little meeting room available if they need to have a private one-on-one chat with anyone. And um, nurses, when they have funding for their outreach program, they come as well Wednesday and Friday afternoons. And um, this is very helpful. Since you, you removed all the seating... What does it look like and feel like in your library now? Oh, it's huge, absolutely huge. Um, You know, uh, people can come in and there was a mom and the the little one was in the library and, um, you know, just doing what kids do and enjoying the space. Um, It's a whole different feeling environment. And we make chair available. Like, obviously, people need to sit. We make chairs available on on an as-needed basis. Are you planning on keeping that the status quo or do you imagine a time where you can go back? There's so many things we have to discuss, and there has to be solutions in place within the town, and I absolutely want to bring the chairs back um, because that's a part of the library. That's an important part of the library. Christine, thank you for your time. Thank you so much, and have a good day. Christine Japai is the head librarian at Hay River's Public Library. We reached her in Hay River, Northwest Territories. A few days before she turned five, Henley Wallach went out for a celebratory swim near Green Island, Wisconsin, and she ended up celebrating more than just her birthday. Henley and her father Tim were out on his boat when they saw the remnants of a sunken ship, which experts believe is the George L. Newman, a 122-foot-long ship that sank more than 150 years ago. Tim and Henley didn't realize the significance of their discovery at the time, but it didn't take too long before it really sank in. We reached Tim Wallach in Pleasant Prairie, Wisconsin. Tim, you and Henley are out near Green Island this past summer. What do you see? Yeah, so we were out uh, taking a look for some fish after we did some swimming in the morning. And I was using my fish finder to go along a sandy shoal. And uh, on the fish finder, I noticed uh, some bright lines with ribs coming off of it at the bottom of the lake. And, uh, you know, I asked Henley to pop over and take a look at it, and she said it was an octopus. <laughs> um, but I kind of had the inclination that it was some type of boat wreck. And did you know of a shipwreck in the area? 
No, I'd, I'd actually been in that area several times, but I had never heard of anything before and never seen it myself. Why do you think you were able to see it this time? So Lake Michigan is several feet down um, over the last few years, their historic lake levels. And uh, Green Island is kind of situated right in the middle of Green Bay, which is a Mm -hmm. very long uh, body of water that gets beat up by sand and tides and current. And I'm I'm guessing that it probably just got uncovered um, with the different water levels and different movements of water. What did Henley think when you said, I don't think it's an octopus, I think it's a shipwreck? (laughs) Well, uh, being my daughter, she argued with me for a second. Uh, And then, you know, I I kind of pointed out to her, hey, this line going down the middle, that's the bottom of the boat. And then these pieces that stick out to either side and a consistent distance, um, those are kind of the ribs of the boat that the bottom is attached to. And then you convinced her, you made, she was satisfied with your case? Eventually she was, and and I was happy because I didn't think she would swim too much if she thought there was a giant octopus in that area. Fair, fair. She was just four uh, at the time, and the reason you were out there, because, you know, she loves the water, wanted to swim, and you were fishing uh, as well. So so you you took some photos. I did, yeah. I I took a couple pictures of my fish finder uh, with the side imaging. Um, Not too many, to be honest, because although I thought it was cool, I didn't understand the significance of it. If I had, I would have taken a bunch more. And you shared them online? Correct. Yeah. So I I took those photos and did a little bit of research on my own. Mm-hmm. Thought it was a ship that had already been discovered called the Uriel Hackley. Um, you know, kind of just sorted away for a while and then joined a group on Facebook that was all about history of Wisconsin and forgotten pieces, memories of Wisconsin um, and posted it on there. And that's when Jordan with the uh, Wisconsin Historical Society reached out to me um, and let me know, hey, I I don't think this is the ship that you think it is. I don't know what it is, um, but I can help you find out. And how long before they figured it out and told you that that this had been down there for for more than 150 years and it was the the remnants of the George L. Newman? You know, within um, an hour or so of me giving him a little bit of information, he came back and said, this is for sure unrecorded. Um, I, I can't tell you definitively, but it sounds like it's an area where uh, the George L. Newman had went down. Um, he said they would put it on their docket for the spring to go out and survey it and try and confirm. Um, but in the meantime, um, in November, the Department of Natural Resources was out there and did their own little survey of it and gave that information to the Historical Society. And uh, based off of that, the Historical Society could say um, pretty confidently that this is the George L. Newman. um, And they sent me a bunch of information. And then Mm -hmm. a couple weeks ago, they posted on their Facebook page. And that's that's how we uh, ended up here today. There are people who dedicate their lives (laughs) to finding shipwrecks, specific (laughs) shipwrecks. So when they told you what you had come across, I mean, did that just did that just blow your mind? It did, especially considering where it was. And I'd been there and I've seen people go through that area before. Um, The fact that a piece of history like that has been there for so long, uh, not known about, uh, it absolutely blew my mind. So what do you know now about the George L. Newman and what happened to it? So it had uh, been sailing with a load of lumber during the Peshtigo fire, um, which is uh, one of the deadliest wildfires in the United States history uh, that happened to be on the same day as the Chicago fire. So not a lot of people know about it. Mm-hmm. 
and uh, the smoke from that was so thick that they had been running the lighthouse on Green Island for a week straight in an attempt to help mariners avoid that island. And unfortunately, the George L. Newman crashed into the Sandy Shoal, um, where they were able to rescue the passengers, save some of the belongings on board. The lighthouse keeper aided in that. He got them to shore where they had to spend, I think, another five days on the island before a boat could get out there to rescue them and bring them back to land. Um, and the boat was abandoned at that point and uh, I, I guess was allowed to be, just be covered with sand until, mm-hmm. until it got uncovered recently. So what does Henley think of all of these details and this history? Can she even, I mean, is she able to process it? She's a smart kid, clearly. To an extent, um, she is. You know, there have been a lot of different articles on it, mm-hmm. and, and I've been reading it them to her. We we read one from USA Today as a bedtime story the other night. <laughs> um, so, you know, she thinks it's super cool. Um, I don't think she understands how far this reaches where you guys are up in Canada here in mm-hmm. our story. Um, it's been in the UK and all throughout the United States. Um, I think as she gets a little bit older, she'll really understand how far this reached. So now does she want to add looking for shipwrecks to her list of activities out on the water now? She does. Yeah. She, she actually said that the other night, um, you know, previously her whole goal was to go out and find some cool rocks or a couple little pieces of sea glass. Um, And now, now I think I'm going to have to spend a whole lot more time staring at my fish finder, which (laughs) isn't the worst thing for me. Yeah, sunken treasure is on her radar now, yeah? Absolutely. Well, congratulations. Nice chatting with you. Thanks, Tim. No problem. Have a good day. You too. Bye-bye. Tim Wallach and his daughter Henley discovered a 150-year-old shipwreck near Green Island, Wisconsin. We reached him in Pleasant Prairie, Wisconsin. Tis the season for workplace holiday parties, but along with the merrymaking, sometimes comes a bittersweet occasion, the announcement that a beloved colleague is moving on. That's what happened at the Royal Saskatchewan Museum in Regina this week, where the giddiness of the staff party was tempered with sorrow at the news that its halls are about to get a little quieter. Megamunch is retiring after 37 years of crowd-pleasing service. Megamunch is a half-sized animatronic Tyrannosaurus Rex known for his mighty roar. The news came with some kind words from his boss. The museum's director, Bree Hinetka, reflected on the ups and downs of Mega Munch's career. So Mega Munch has seen a ton happen at the museum in the 37 years since he's been here. So he came on May 16th in 1986. He also actually took a bit of a secondment and he worked at the Regina Airport um, for a few years during the construction of the new life sciences gallery after the fire. And then he did go through some illness. Um, He has, you know, lost his speech and he did have um, some problems with mobility. So he has gone through some illness. We've also had to, um, he had operation on his skin. But, you know, he's had many uh, birthdays here. He celebrated the Grey Cup. Um, And over the last 10 years or so, 
he's really gotten into fashion and um, he's been celebrating a lot of different themes and occasions in different outfits. He's dressed in a Santa um, and a holiday outfit, so people can come and check that out. Myself, I was a child of the 80s. I was able to come and experience Mega Munch and, you know, he always left an impression on me. And I think um, now parents are bringing those children and uh, making those memories with their children as well. He has certainly charmed uh, multiple generations over the years. And, and that's why we really wanted to get the word out about his retirement. So people can come and, um, you know, have a chance to say goodbye before his last day. So Megamind said he's going back to the Cretaceous period to be with friends and families um, and that he has just, you know, enjoyed every second of his 37 years here at the Royal Saskatchewan Museum. Bree Hanetka is the executive director of the Royal Saskatchewan Museum. She spoke to the morning edition in Regina earlier today. Megamunch's last day will be in February. Charlie Brown Christmas is a classic for many reasons. Charlie Brown's blues, Lucy's questionable psychiatric advice, Snoopy's ostentatiously over-decorated doghouse, and of course, that tree. The small, anemic tree that buckles under the weight of a single ornament. A tree so underwhelming it has become the low standard for subpar saplings everywhere. But a real-life tree that just sold at auction in the UK might give it a run or a limp for its money. Jill Galoni is with Hanson's Auctioneers in Derbyshire. We reached her today in Algarve, Portugal. Jill, I've seen photographs of this tree. And if I may say, I I think the Charlie Brown tree is actually a a little bit nicer uh, than this one. (laughs) But just give our listeners a sense of what it looks like. Well, it is about 30 inches tall. It's got about 20 little branches, very sporadically spaced out. (laughs) And a few berries and a little little candle holder or two as well, but very, very basic, very, very basic tree with a little wooden base. The, when you say they're spread out, it's very, it's very spread out between the branches. Yes, but... it's, there's a few inches between each branch, yes. <laughs> and it has been referred to as a giant toilet brush tree as well. Why would people say that? Well, when when the first mass-produced artificial Christmas trees were made in the UK, the actual technology they used was based on the toilet brush. A company that was making toilet brushes um, decided to uh, expand into a new direction and I mean, yeah. thought, oh, that might work for a Christmas tree, and it, it kind of did, yeah. So they just took the same kinds of pieces and, and painted them or spray-painted them green? Yes. That's that's what I understand. Then I did my research on it, yes. And um, if you actually look at an artificial tree, you can actually see, you know, even now in today's artificial trees, there is a bit of a similarity. The same technology as you, that's, that's a great use of the word technology. Yes. When would this have been? 
Well, the first artificial mass-produced Christmas trees, it was you sort of going back to the 1920s, 1930s, and a big department store in the UK called Woolworth started selling them around that time, mm. and they, they were, you know, quite commonplace at that time, but um, families were very excited about it, This uh, being able to have the, the, the tree, the, the little Christmas tree of their own for the first time. So what can you tell us about the family that originally owned this particular tree? Yeah, they were just a, an ordinary working family from a, a very small sort of town, village in, 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 in the middle of England. And the father um, went out and she, the, the seller actually thinks he bought it from a department store in London. Um, but they actually lived in a county called Leicestershire in the Midlands, very ordinary family. And um, he bought the tree home. And the, and the, the girl, it was the daughter, um, the, the daughter of the, the lady who was had the tree when she was eight years old, eight years old in 1920. She said her mother was desperately excited. You know, as an eight-year-old girl, when this tree arrived at the house at Christmas in 1920, she thought it was the most amazing thing. That that eight-year-old at the time was Dorothy Grant. The woman selling it now is Dorothy's daughter, Shirley Hall, who is 84 yes. years old. Yes. Um, you know, why Why <laughs> is she deciding to sell it? Because clearly, I mean, it doesn't take up a lot of space. I get it. You have to declutter. It doesn't take up a whole lot of space, but it seems to take up a lot of you know, emotional space in their family, certainly. It is. And, and, and a lot of people get very confused by this. They, they, they cannot understand why something that's emotionally important to somebody, why would they part with it? But what I've learned over many years of working sort of for auction houses is everybody comes to a certain time of life and an age where they actually, if something means a lot to them, I think, well, what's going to happen to it? If I pass, you know, what's going to happen to this thing? And nobody wants it, you know, will it be, end up being thrown in a skip and right. dumped? And that at that point, I think, well, if I sell it, somebody who really, really want it for all the right reasons is going to treasure it for the next few decades. <laughs> and that's why she wanted to sell it and to honour her mother's memory, which is why she told the story about the tree so people would understand, but people still get very confused by it, and they can be quite cruel sometimes. Think, Ooh, why oh. is she selling it? And of course, she never wanted to sell it. She didn't need the money, and it was only valued at sixty to eighty pounds. But so well, she was blown away by yeah. why what it went for. But she's all she's going to give the money to charity. Oh, that's lovely, so, especially at this time of yeah. year. And what did you think of that final sale price? Thirty four hundred pounds, just over thirty four hundred pounds, which is about. 5700 Canadian dollars. Did you yes. imagine there would be that much interest and that high a price? No. <laughs> no, we were absolutely amazed and blown away by it because we've sold a couple of similar trees before and they didn't make anything like that kind hmm. of money. They were closer to their actual estimates. So one made £150 and another one, which was bought by the American Christmas Tree Association, sold for £420. Mm. So this one, you know, selling for over £3,000 was just incredible. Nobody could believe it. Yeah. And what about the buyer? Can you tell us anything about them? Why they would spend so much and want this tree so badly? I, d I did contact the buyer mm. and... It was a gentleman from the UK, but he didn't want to. He wanted to be completely anonymous. He said, all, all I can tell you, if you'd please pass it on to the seller, that the tree has gone for a, to a very good home. He just wanted it for whatever reason. He didn't want to explain why, but 
it must have maybe the story about how she because obviously again we've sort of not touched on it yet but the lady who had it at the age of 80 in 1920 lived to be 101 years old <laughs> so she treasured it for all that for all those years for the rest of her life from the age of eight until she passed away at 101 so it's just kind of a nice thing really and there's a lot of horrible things in the world isn't it and I think it's just one of those stories that touch people so maybe it was a good luck charm all of those years yeah, yeah. I mean, and a reminder of happiness because, you know, childhood and Christmas is such an important thing. And, you know, as a child, when you're so excited in that, and obviously that tree reminded her of her childhood and probably it was the most exciting thing, Christmas thing that ever happened at the age of eight when the first Christmas tree the family had ever had came into the house. Jill, thank you and Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas to you and thank you very much for your interest. Take care. Take care. Jill Galoni is the head of media and advertising at Hanson's Auctioneers in Derbyshire. We reached her today in Algarve, Portugal. You've been listening to the As It Happens podcast. Our show can be heard Monday to Friday on CBC Radio 1, following the world at 6. You can also listen to the show online at cbc.ca slash AIH or on the CBC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening. I'm Neil Kirksal. And I'm Chris Howden. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.